This episode may include sensitive stories, topics, or themes that may be difficult to hear. Please take care of yourself and your well-being should something arise for you. Welcome to the latest episode of Punk Therapy, Psychedelic Underground Neural Kindness. I'm Dr. T, working on my PhD. And I'm the Truth Fairy, coming to you from the underground. Together, we hope to inspire integrity, courage, kindness, creativity, and rigor in the fast-growing industry of psychedelic healing. G'day everyone, welcome to our next episode. Today we're going to talk about a TV show which you might have seen recently aired called Nine Perfect Strangers uh, and what a fun show that was. Um, the, the basic premise of it is that there are nine, nine people who are all seeking some healing and some radical change in their life and they've sought out this kind of slightly mystical retreat centre called Tranquillum that is run and hosted by a character called Masha, who is this Russian woman who, you know, at first is this also mystical kind of figure dressed all in white, who is their kind of charismatic leader on their journey through, through healing. Um, and the, the catch or the interesting part about this um, show is that she is microdosing them on psychedelics from pretty much day one um, and not telling them about it. So, yeah, it's a pretty interesting so we thought premise. It was a, we thought it was a really great idea to, you know, introduce this show uh, on punk therapy to kind of pull this apart. I know that there have been uh, lucid news wrote a sort of a review about this, about what did they get right, what did they get wrong. And uh, we thought we'd delve into it a little bit more deeply here because it's such an intriguing show. And those of us that are, you know, underground therapists or, you know, looking to be certified or just the public in general, it, it stirs some controversy at this time because I think that people that are afraid of psychedelics might get a little bit more afraid. And those of us that are, you know, working to deliver and serve medicine work with ethics and rigor are going to be up in arms a little bit about some of the things that happens at Tranquillum. What do you say, <laughs> Dr. T? What, what part of this do you want to start with? I don't know. I mean, I just think Marsha did a great job, you know, trauma-informed care, really making sure that she's transparent, <laughs> you know, really letting them know on her process, you know. I find yeah, drugging people, people without telling them it's, you know, best way to heal trauma. Yeah, um, really, and following people around with cameras. and Oh, and, that's right. Uh, she's watching that? them. She's watching yeah. them. She's taking things from them. I mean, the only thing I take from people when they walk into one of my groups is I ask them to put their cell phones in a, in a little... Uh, in a little case. So I ask you to relinquish your cell phones, which is a, a, a Marina Abramovich practice. Yeah. I think they, so they did their research, I reckon. Like a lot of the elements that they've put in there are elements that I went, yeah, I would do that too. Uh, I really like the way they they um, they did a lot of it. And 
uh, in particular, I loved the character development. Like straight away, I was pretty pretty um, fascinated by all these wacky, interesting characters who bizarrely sort of didn't really, not just in terms of the psychedelic, but didn't really seem to know what they'd signed up for. Like Frances, the the woman who, you know, was the writer who was uh-huh. having a hard time, sort of seemed to be coming to this place looking for a bit of a pampering. So <laughs> psychedelic medicine is far far from pampering. Right? Yes. Actually, I watched a video just before because I was trying to refresh my brain on this. And the I think the first scene where they introduce Marsha, she goes to Frances's room and she does this weird thing where she she's kind of standing there watching her from afar when all of a sudden Uh Francis notices her and then the camera pans over to um, Nicole Kidman standing all dressed in perfect white and she has a flower and she speaks to Francis about what she's doing there. I just remember the last comment that she said is that people don't come here to um, feel better, they come here to suffer. You know, and mm. she she sort of alludes to this idea that we know in psychedelics that often it's got to get worse before it's got it's going to get better. We, we've got to actually. I think you were talking about it before. We have to encounter that which is distressing us at a deep level. Mm-hmm. But then and you were also talking about how you know in this show and in in general how we have to make sure that people are ready for that. Well, it's called informed consent, and. <laughs> you know in the show uh none of the none of the characters none of the participants actually know that they're being dosed that they're being microdosed and that uh every day the the levels of their psilocybin are increasing in their smoothie in the morning and of course they're all in shock as anyone would be that oh i've been taking a drug and you know and here's some of that that is so interesting too like using the word drug or using the word medicine you know in in i often try to educate my clients on the use of the word that we can be taking drugs or we can be taking medicines and that the word medicine implies um the possibility of ceremony ritual uh, healing, uh, conscientiousness, integrity, whereas drug uh, can really have the connotations of partying, drugging someone, being something taken without your knowledge. And that's, this is essentially what's happening in Tranquillum. And so I'm really, really curious. Obviously, this, this is a compilation of a lot of different stories. They probably took some of the worst stories and put them together. But I'm very, very, obviously it's to up the drama, but, you know, how they would choose to have the storyline of not telling anyone, not telling any of the participants that they're going to be taking medicine. And I I, I want to say that, you know, as we, here's the fine line about being in this world, either, either, you know, the future is clinics with certified therapists and hopefully the future still includes underground therapists who are no longer underground, but have spent decades working, uh, tire, you know, exhaustively. And what's really, really important here and is that we're never supposed to tell anyone that we do it, but then how do our clients find out about it, right? So that we're offering this. And this is the dilemma that I faced when I first started working with it, is if I don't tell anyone about the medicine, then how do they know that I'm working with it? how might I suggest that this is a possible route? And so this is why we have to really, really 
ground ourselves in this work. When we see that a medicine or a certain medicine or a certain treatment could be helpful for someone, how do we give them the gentlest of nudge in that direction to consider it? Um, because, you know, in our desire to help people, and this is what Masha does, she wants to help people. You know, she comes from this place of her own trauma. She was shot. She lost her daughter. And she has this urge to help people. She wants to help them. She thinks she's got the answers. And, you know, the psychedelic world out there right now may also think it has the answers. Some, some websites that I'm looking at, it lists all the things that microdosing does for us. And, you know, I microdose, uh, but it, it, it has it changed my life drastically. Uh, it's really enhanced my life. It's been wonderful, but it's not like I don't have personal problems. It does this mean that, you know, my life has changed overnight. You know, things change slowly and we still encounter difficulties in our lives. We take many steps forward and all of a sudden many, many steps back. So uh, I, I might be sort of bringing a lot of different ideas into this right now. I'll try to bring it back. But I think what's really an important message that I want to send after watching Nine Perfect Strangers is that we have to calm the urgency. There is this uh, urgency in Masha to help people. There's an urgency to give people the medicine. There's an urgency on that in one of the episodes of, oh, okay, we have to get the medicine to everybody. And meanwhile, she's running around. She's in high arousal, <laughs> running around, <laughs> trying to manage everything, lock everyone in. That's not the way you do it. We have to prepare slowly. We have to get to know people. We have to build relationship with people. They need to be able to ask questions. They need to be able to say, I'm nervous, I'm scared, or can we postpone this a little bit? Because when we're in urgency, they will also feel the urgency and that that's when people start to lose a sense of choice or autonomy. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And the, that whole show is, that's the drama, is this building urgency um, as if something terrible is about to happen and every roadblock that comes along where any normal person would put a pause on everything, Marsha decides to up the ante. She doesn't, mm -hmm. she doesn't, she neither slows down nor plateaus. She actually goes, oh, well, since things are getting chaotic, let's, let's just keep on going. Let's do a deeper ceremony, a deeper work. Let's up the dose that we're giving everybody. And that I think is what, what makes the show tantalizing. Um, but is also precisely what is so wrong about it in terms of how you would want to do this work. Absolutely. And I think this happens to so many people. They start off in medicine work or some people believe in starting people out on a deep dive before they're ready mm -hmm. and already starting with heroic doses. And this is what concerns me is as, as we're dealing with people's issues, sometimes people want to stack more and more medicines. You know, therapists do this. They want to stack more and more medicines. And that's not the answer. And I want to give two examples about that in sort of in my own personal work recently and also work with a client. And it's like it's so humbling over and over again. You know, I've worked uh, personally with 5-MeO-DMT for quite some time, not alone. I'm always working with my uh, team uh, of apprentices, assistants, my husband as well. And I think for about three years now, I've been working with this medicine and I'm not upping the, the amount that I'm taking, but my work is getting deeper and deeper. So I'm able to access uh, memories and experiences. And actually the medicine is getting 
heavier and heavier as I work with it. You know, I used to start off with, I first started off with 15 milligrams and then upped it to 17 and then 20. And then 20 was this sweet spot for a while. This is uh, 5-MeO-DMT insufflated. And I have to say, and I'll be very, very frank uh, with you, Dr. T, about this, about three weeks ago, I sensed that I was getting close to something very, very big. And I'd also have been undergoing what's called um, high intensity, global high intensity activation. We can come back and define that a little later, but essentially global high intensity activation is um, very deep nervous system dysregulation, often occurring from trauma in the womb or birth trauma or trauma as a child. And essentially you as a, a fetus or, or infant or child, you can't resort to running away or getting away from a situation. So your only resort is to freeze or shut down or pull your energy into your guts or into your bones or into your eyes or into your skin. So you have nowhere else to go. And essentially you can start to feel like you're electrocuted or you feel like you're, well, that's one of the biggest symptoms for me, electrocuted. You can have migraines, there, there are all sorts of different conditions that it brings up over time, especially as we age. So long story short, I, I've been going through some of that high global high intensity activation just because of the year that I've had this year, and it can feel like I'm being electrocuted sometimes. So I also suspected that there was something in my past that I wasn't able to access. And, you know, our memory doesn't come online until we're our hippocampus doesn't come online until we're 17 months old. So there was something. So this particular evening, I thought to myself, I, I'm very close. It was like this shadow, something haunting me just before I fall asleep. I could sense like, why is my husband falling asleep? And all of a sudden I'm awake, like I'm waiting for something to happen. And this can certainly happen in cases of sexual abuse where abusers came in the middle of the night. I also knew that that's not what happened to me, but something happened because my sleep had just been getting so disturbed so uh, essentially with my group that night, I said, hey, I'm going to go low. I'm going to go to 15 milligrams because uh, I just want to have a gentle night here. Well, it was anything but gentle because within five minutes, I was, uh, I, I said to everyone, oh, guys, uh, can, you, can you come close? Can you uh, make some physical contact with me? Something's going on. And then, and then all of a sudden, as soon as they came, came close to me, I said, get away from me. And that's not my normal. I'm not telling people to get away from me. I like touch. And all of a sudden I said, get away from me because all of a sudden what is normally a dose that I can really work with, it felt like I was on the verge of a, a psychotic break. And I, and I have never been, you know, I've felt crazy in my life. Not, that's not the appropriate word, but I felt like I was losing my mind or going crazy in my twenties, my thirties, just from deep sadness and stress. But I was on the verge of what felt like it was going to be a psychotic break, that I could not hold the medicine, that I was going to lose touch completely with reality and absolute terror coming out of me. And I actually had to grab my husband, grab him by the forearm and say, tell me I'm not going to lose my mind. Normally I'd have my eye shades on. I pulled them off because I actually had to see where I was. And then before I knew it, I was slammed up against a wall, wailing so deeply and holding onto a blanket and wailing. And the next moment I found myself on my back in, in something that happened in the crib when I was little. And just to protect the identity of 
who may have done this, but I, I am, I am going to say that I retrieved a memory of being strangled in the crib and surviving it. Um, so I haven't told you this, Dr. T, but it took, it was, it took everything I had. My body reenacted the whole thing and I felt the whole thing of choking and my arms flailing and my guts twisting. And what I had to do was make a lot of sound and noise and use all my, one little tiny part of my brain could still remember all the somatic training I've ever had to keep myself grounded and make it through the enactment. And tell everyone to shut up and don't interfere and don't do this. I've, I've got this, but in the midst of it, I didn't know if I was actually going to come back. I didn't know mm. if I would actually be sane by the end of that night. So all this to say, you know, this is a lower dose and I keep going smaller and I keep going smaller. And this is like a pretty big thing to be revealing on our podcast right now, because I have, my God, my reverence and humility and my goodness for this medicine after three years of working with it uh, periodically, it's like, I'm at a point where I'm like, I'm taking a pause with this medicine. If I ever do it again, I'll do it like two milligrams, if that, or maybe I'll just, but it really, really taught me. I mean, I was ready to go there. I had done a lot of work. It was like kind of like a training for a a marathon, but had I not known to use my body, breathe through, remember that I'm going to get through this, I like if any of my clients had gone through that um, journey, I don't think they'd ever touch psychedelics again. Mm. And I really, it might, so, so what this is a long winded explanation here why we have to be careful because we don't know when this can happen for a client and to mm. bring. Tra serious trauma out of dissociation, we have to be very, very prepared on mm. how we work with someone, how prepared they are to meet information. And we have to be so careful about how they meet their trauma, how prepared we are to help them understand what can happen because mm -hmm. we don't know when this can happen. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I was prepared, but I wasn't prepared. Yeah, yeah, and and you how know? can you be? Well, this is years of working with medicines. Like yeah. Well, yeah. So, it, as we start upping the doses for people, as we think that more is better, it's actually not always better because as things are ready to come out of dissociation, we could go into huge reenactments, and that is something else because people can go into psychotic breaks. So we have to be so careful mm. and start small. Start mm -hmm. small, you know, build relationships or mm -hmm. else you can get more than you bargained for. Yeah, that's right. Build relationship you, with yourself, with the facilitator and with the medicine itself, that familiarity mm -hmm. with what it can do for you and what it might do for you. And even with all of that familiar, familiarity, it can still take you places that you could have never imagined. And that's exactly why it's helpful a lot of the time. Because if it only took you to places that you could already imagine, then you might have already got there yourself. So there is a sort of, there's a, a benefit in it being able to take you through something which um, you would never put yourself through, but which you can surrender to if you have done the right preparation and you're being held in the, in the proper way. And, you know, in complete contrast to what you you know, described in terms of preparation. I'm just, the, the, the scene is coming to mind in Nine Perfect Strangers of when 
they are trying to bring on an experience with the Falcone family, the mm-hmm. mom, Heather, the dad, Napoleon, and the daughter, Zoe. Zoe. The, yeah, so Marsha's just dealing with one fire. She's just put one <laughs> fire out. Carmel is locked in a room against her will. Yes. Marsha's decided that the best way to guide them is to take an equal dose with them. And mm-hmm. uh, I remember she comes up and they're all hesitant because they know that there's, you know, shit going on left, right and centre across the centre. Um, and Marsha's trying to play it cool, but she's totally in uh, hyper arousal. Um, and she's just downed a, some sort of cocktail of, I don't know what, like a variety of different drugs and is encouraging them to do the same thing. Right. And meanwhile, Delilah's off to report her to the police, right? She's already That's driving right, away yeah. <laughs> and Yao's trying to hold things down. And then everyone's kind of locked. People are different. People are locked in a room as well. And, oh, oh and, uh, Tony and, um, Oh, what's her name? Sorry. Tony and the writer Francis are trying to leave as well. People are trying to leave. Yeah. 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 And the mum, I just remember she and the dad actually both are just confronted by the blame that they hold for themselves for their son's suicide. Mm -hmm. And I think in her case, quite maybe unconsciously or quite hidden, you know, she was I think, you know, she knew that she had um, read the side effects of a particular medication that he was on and that one of the side effects was suicidal ideation, um, but that she had not maybe, she could have done more maybe to, pro- to pro- uh, protect him from that. Um, and so in her experience she gets confronted by that and by some degree of self-blame that she'd been carrying but which she'd been ignoring um, for that experience and she very well nearly I think loses it from that you know that that's too much for her to handle and I think she's screaming and, and losing herself you know in, in that experience and they're all out in the woods lost with each other and confused and having yeah hallucinations of of the sun a shared hallucination of the sun which is quite an interesting thing actually um, that huh. we were speaking about before this idea of of having a shared Maybe hallucination is not the right word, but a shared vision or a shared experience. Yeah, it's uh, there is um, and I've experienced it before on ketamine when I'm working with my group with my uh, assistants that sometimes we start to share a vision or that we have this collective vision or there's this sense of plugging into each other's journeys or seeing something similar. That's always very intriguing to me how you know, what goes into the unconscious, somehow we both end up in a, in a wheat field with wheat blowing. And I think, I mean, we did not see that image together, but it's part of our collective image. And how do we link that way? And I, and I do think it's possible to be tuned in and so intuitive and empathic that we do sense what's going on in someone else. But what I, I find again, and I kind of want to bring it back to Masha's urgency that she really sets an agenda here where she thinks she knows what is best for you, what she is trying to get you to break through. And I've seen this uh, as well, Mm. where therapists in psychedelic therapists can and other therapists can um, have this sense that if the client could only break through with this, then they'd feel better. And that's a real danger because that's having a, a picture of someone else's life. And that's another betrayal. It's so important that we clear agendas and 
really um, not have a sense of what could be good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And if only you broke through on this, then you wouldn't have relationship issues, right? We have this, this, this subtle orchestration that can happen, and I think that's quite dangerous. And to promise something, to promise someone that, oh, this is, this is the way it goes, just because I've had this, this journey the way I have, does not mean that it's going to reveal something to someone. So to, to kind of set our experiences aside, I think it's so important that we can inform people about what could happen, but set our lived experience aside for someone else to have it. Certainly inform them on the fact that it could go dark, inform that it inform them that it could be very euphoric or that nothing could happen. It's important, but, you know, keep our projected experiences out of other people's medicine sessions is really important. Yeah, totally. It's so easy to do, project. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, yeah, there's, some, there's something to a somatic practice, an embodied somatic practice to learn to contain your energy I do it every time before a client comes and sees me. I, I spend some time being with myself, breathing into my body and just doing a check-in, containing my own energy so that I can and I'm able to hold space and be receptive to their experience without um, throwing my agenda into the mix. And mm-hmm. I think all the more important when somebody's under the influence of a psychedelic because they're so vulnerable and their belief structures about the world, how they see themselves, how they see other people are so open for change, which is why they're such wonderful medicines, but also why they require such a delicate respect in that regard of not projecting our way of seeing the world onto them um, while they're on it. And then also in the aftermath, the afterglow the next day um, and even the week following, you know, not being careful not to project that that onto them. And I've seen it, you know, when I was in South America, I remember one of the mm-hmm. shamans that we sat with, he had, he had a speech ready to go after people had finished their ceremonies. And it was the same speech every time. Um, and it was a beautiful speech and it was an inspiring speech. Um, and I don't fully, like, I don't regret having listened to it. And I do appreciate everything he said, but he was definitely taking advantage of that susceptibility um, in people to hear a different way of seeing the world to, um, in order to project the way he saw the world needed to change and to, to be an influencer in the world um, in that sort of culty, like guru-esque kind of way. Um, so, yeah, I think yeah. Some, some gentleness is required in this kind of work. Absolutely. And, you know, taking people that have never done medicine. And then, you know, this was the other thing. I was actually my mouth, (laughs) mouth open agog where she said, you're going to take LSD, DMT. And what was the third medicine? Do you remember? Um, Maybe some mushrooms as well, like synthetic mushrooms. Oh, that was, it was something else. But I remember being absolutely shocked that this was the cocktail, like LSD just on its own is, is a huge medicine. And then adding in DMT and then adding in something else. And so maybe, maybe that was maybe that was the nudge nudge in the show saying, you know, this is this is what we're hearing people doing. But, you know, I'm thinking um, to myself, um, a recent experience working with a client and, you know, she has started to 
explore medicine in her 60s. She's um, very accomplished in her own healing practice, but had never explored psychedelics. She's, she's known that she's had a lot of birth trauma, but both her own birth trauma and that of her, her children. And that is hard, hard stuff to work with. And, 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 you know, this kind of goes back a little bit to some of our earlier episodes about touch, but sometimes we have to go at these early traumas from many, many, many different angles and they come up over in from in many different angles I recently worked with her for her fourth time in one of these three-day sessions and birth trauma came up in the first one and the second one and sort of in the third one but it really came full force on the fourth one and I hadn't anticipated it she hadn't anticipated it and it was it was one of those where I went oh my goodness I'm just about you know, feeling very, very confident. We built our relationship over time. And then, and, and it was a smaller amount of medicine that we're, than we're used to working. And she was full on, full blown into a, an exiled part of her that was terrified. And she could not get out of that shocked, stuck place, cycling in terror, cycling in fear, her breathing. She was in high arousal breathing and it just kept going on. And all our practices, all that we'd ever done, nothing, nothing got her out of that cycling this time. And it was a very sobering experience uh, for myself. And I went, wow. I mean, she was asking to meet a very empty place. She was asking to meet shame. And certainly this was, I mean, I can't, it would be unfair of me to interpret it, but she looked very, very young. She was in a distressed state. She looked like she could have been a baby just pushing her arms up. Like, this is why I want to be careful about interpreting it. But it was definitely an infant. And, you know, I was there with an assistant. And there was no way on earth that we could have done that session with without full-on supportive holding, gentle stroking of her head, you know, gentle stroking of her cheek. Um, it had to be fully held. Uh, because there's no way your body can contain that level of distress without getting physical support. And because um, we want to get the, you know, adrenaline cortisol levels down and we can do that through releasing oxytocin through touch. But what was so sobering is that it had opened so much up that it had been dissociated because she was used to numbing herself. She had a very, very quick freeze shutdown gig. And it just opened itself up with an, a vengeance. And no matter how I tried to work with her or calm her, she could not calm herself. It was like a baby that you cannot soothe. Un mm. Inconsolable, the baby that keeps you up all night. And I had such empathy for mothers going, wow, like, you know, those when the baby just starts again, it calms itself for one second and then it just starts again and again. And I thought to myself, wow, and that was the fourth one. We've really hit something here. And then it required, I mean, we have to be so careful of how we sort of got her, you know, it's, it's this very difficult moment here is that do you keep someone, do you keep going, do you let them rest a little bit, do you kind of speak to them as an adult, you have to kind of speak to them as an adult and also be aware that a very young infant part has, has been woken up. Uh, she was staying not too far from where I am in an Airbnb. So we, you know, drove her back. We, you know, my assistant got her into the apartment. She is an adult. She knows on one hand what's happening. Then there was a lot of texting back and forth, checking on her. 
you know, her condition hadn't changed much in the morning and I had to really, really think how was I going to approach this because certainly when someone's kind of stuck in cycling in hyper arousal, that's the hyper arousal. That's the frozen terror and the frozen fear that's come out of dissociation and it's cycling in sympathetic arousal. Mm-hmm. And I admittedly felt lost at one point. I thought, I, I don't know where to go from here. And even in the session when I was working her, I've tried everything. We've, we were, were, we at one point said, let's lie like matchsticks so we can like get really close, press in a little bit. So in the morning I had to, before she was coming, uh, she had reached out to my assistant and I ha- and asked my assistant if she, my assistant in training, an intern, said, "Would you come and spend an hour with me before I start with Rita?" And I actually very strictly asked my assistant not to do that. I said, "You and I have to stay on the same page here, because this is when odd transferences can start. Uh, odd transferences such as mommy couldn't help me." Right. Mm -hmm. So this is where someone can start to kind of flip on you and say, hey, you weren't able to help me. So I had to say to my my intern, I need you to go pick her up and bring her here. But don't spend that hour with her before. We're going to start the work together. We're all going to do this together. Mm -hmm. I also called in um, my my husband, who's an assistant to me. And this client knows my husband well, just to create a family. So what I did was I need a family here. We need a mother and a father. We need the nurse. And um, and when I did that, I went, okay, good. Now, now there's a community. And this is when I was able to start saying, what is missing? What was missing in the birthing experience? Her mother was in distress. She was in distress. She remembers this herself. And I asked uh, my husband to, to just kind of come close to me and offer me a little support. And then I asked her, hey, what's it like for you to see me receiving support right now and then she started to cry for the first time and she said my mother never had that support when she was giving birth to me Mm. and then the tears started to come Mm -hmm. and then that dysregulation started to finally calm because she had been in a cycle of that for quite some time and we were sort of sitting in a little circle, you know, a little semicircle around her. I'd given her a, a, a blanket to hold as a little baby so she could now talk to herself as the infant. But that took all my knowing plus stopping entirely and going, I, this is going to require nerves of steel because when someone's in an agitated state and they can't get out of it, and we've tried everything in a calm, calm way, and they can't get out of it, and you're lost and they're lost, you got to slow right, right down, ground yourself, forget everything you know, Mm -hmm. forget any tools, and just ask for a moment of inspiration. And that was my moment of inspiration. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to call my husband here. We're going to create a family to hold this infant. Uh And sure enough, you know, she started to communicate. She started to cry. She started to kind of actually experience her birth trauma, which was the cord around her neck, and she'd been breached as well. So she had serious, it was, it's serious for a baby to come out with a cord tangled around the neck. It shapes your view of life. Mm. You know, it, it's like it, it can actually lead to a person who's driven to work all the time because you have to work that hard to come to life. 
it, it can it, it can follow you into your 60s mm. you know feeling like yeah. you can never stop working if the life is that hard to begin with so it was the first time i saw in her an experience of really making peace really making peace with how hard she had worked to come into this lifetime and that she was actually ready to stop working so hard <laughs> long wow. story but you cool know story mm-hmm. yeah no thank you mm-hmm. for sharing that I actually I had a thought as you were sharing that that um I'd like to and maybe this is something we can do in a future episode um is a bit of supervision I have a client who who knows and I won't speak too much into it now because I need to seek their permission before we do this properly um, but I can say a few things, which is just that they they know that they have some pretty severe early um, childhood trauma from around the age of four. And there's a scene that came to them under the influence of a psychedelic recently mm. of them wanting to take their own life at that age. Mm. Um, I won't describe the scene yet because I think that would be too much information, but maybe next time. I will. Um, And she was not sure what to make of this scene. And I wasn't too sure what to make of it yet either. And But what I said to her was, I know someone who might be able to help us with that. And so um, she was okay with me doing supervision with you around it. Um, But I haven't Mm -hmm. asked her about the podcast yet. So it would be really interesting to unpack, you know, the significance of this. And also to maybe talk into how would you approach this? from mm-hmm. the perspective of being a medicine worker, how would you approach this person to try and help them with that kind of early on trauma of not wanting to, to live anymore? And, yeah, just something to, to get excited about maybe at a future episode. Yeah, a little teaser here. Yeah, a little teaser. Something else that kind of comes to mind as you were talking about was this concept of transference. And I thought that in Nine Perfect Strangers that, that it was quite interesting the way that they portrayed Marsha and the way that um, she portrayed herself to the participants. And um, on the one hand, you, you know, she was there was this urgency and this um, sense of I know what's best for you, neither of which are kind of good or safe, I think. On the other hand, there was this certainty or this confidence that she portrayed and I you know I do feel that in a lot of circumstances that being certain or confident can create a kind of positive transference where you know a client Mm -hmm. trusts and believes in you because you trust and believe in yourself and that Mm -hmm. in itself can can lend itself to positive transformation and I I guess I'm wondering what experiences you've had in in that regard if, if you relate to that well, it's a fantastic question, and I think I I wish to say that, actually I said this to everyone this morning, what is more important than portraying confidence, what is more in, in, in important than feeling sure of yourself, and I'm going to keep coming back to this over and over again, is a sense of embodied empathy, embodiment, groundedness. Mm-hmm. that is more important than anything along with humility because I'm not, and I'm going to say this, this is a podcast about psychedelic medicine. I'm not a hundred percent confident that this is the way to go. I feel like that every single time. And I'm booked, you know, I'm booked way in advance. I work with seven different medicines. I think this is an extraordinary field, but I'm not a hundred percent sold that this is the way. 
And mm-hmm. what, I, what I mean about that, what I mean about that, to be really honest and clear, mm-hmm. is that when things come out of dissociation, we have a lot of work to do to integrate what has come out of dissociation. We can't just take people off to groups, come back, and not have the follow-up and the support. And sometimes when it comes out too fast, people can go into a shutdown state again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I grapple with this all the time because in the non-medicine work that I do, I'm very slow. I'm very careful. As I notice some discomfort coming up, I kind of cycle a little back and forth between digestible pieces and then digest it a little bit more and digestible. And then all of a sudden full throttle, throttle in medicine work, it just comes up very counter to how I work mm-hmm. in, a non, in, in a non-medicine session. So that's where I'm always in this state of, is this... Is this really going to help us? Well, in the long run, yes. I'm seeing how it's profoundly helping clients. They're telling me it's helping them. That's wonderful. But I think Mm -hmm. that I'm not into saying this medicine is going to really help you. I'm saying let's try and work with this. Let's see how this comes up. I stay grounded. I help the client ground themselves. And I wanted to add this one thing. Sometimes we can, in medicine we can sometimes lose our perspective and the whole thing just kind of takes us over and it takes over and we lose our capacity ourselves to keep one eye in the present and one eye in the past. It's like Mm -hmm. losing your faculties. This is -hmm. what almost happened to me on 5-MEO. And this is sort of what happened to this client where where this this exile overtook her. This memory overtook her and she could not remember how to ground. That was Mm -hmm. quite a big experience. I think we need to learn in medicine work. Yes, it's great to kind of lose the ego, but at the same time, we have to have one foot in the present at at some point. Some part of us that can still tether. It's not just about blasting everything open, you know, because we have to come back as well, (laughs) you know? So when you asked about the confidence piece, I, I don't walk around being confident that this is the solution. I, I, Say we're, we're working together, you've signed some consent forms, some waivers, stuff can come up and I will do my utmost to support you through it and to be there for you at the end and, and mm. onward. Yeah. That's kind of my take on it. I think, you know, I think what you're alluding to, truth fairy, is a special kind of confidence and I think that's so valuable. And it's not the kind of confidence that says I know what's best and I know what's in your best interest and I'm 100% confident that this medicine is going to help you, but rather a kind of deep self-assurance, an embodied self-assurance that in in its you know most challenged moments might even have the certainty to say, hey, I don't know. I don't know what to do here. I'm, I'm not sure. And um, having that confidence to put the pause on, put the brake on and slow things right down and then allowing the moment to inform what you might do next. You know, as you described before, that moment um, where, you know, it was so hard to regulate um, this person and you had to have this whole family around them and there was that, that moment where you were not sure what to do and something occurred to you to ask somebody to, to nurture you in that moment and then ask the client what it was like to witness, you know, someone who was kind of holding the figure of the mother being nurtured. And so, yeah, I think that that is something that Marsha does a pretty good job of portraying that confidence, but I think she maybe takes it a few steps too far. So anyway, we're just at about 45 minutes now. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our little chat about Nine Perfect Strangers. And next time, maybe we'll uh, unpack how to work with this client that I alluded to before. Adios. That concludes this episode. We hope you found it meaningful and integrative. Remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify and kindly share the link with your friends and colleagues. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at info at punktherapy.com. And remember to punk your inner wisdom. <laughs>